recognizing that that was what was important to my team was not me leading from the front, but allowing them to optimize for what they needed in their careers was a really important mental shift that was, I was fortunate because it was forced upon me. Like my team brought it to me and said, here's how we want this operation to transition rather than me having to like come to it on my own because it really helped me understand that what I think folks need may not be what they actually need. Mm -hmm. um, That's a very, very important lesson. Hey there, Funsmiths. When you're a team starting a new campaign or trying to win a daring battle, there's one important lesson you should never forget. The better the leader, the better the team. Of course, this lesson translates far beyond video games and into everyday life. For example, the better you are at leading a team at your job, the better success you'll find. But what does it mean to be a good leader? Or in the workforce, a manager? In today's episode, we go in-depth with Nathan Tiris about exactly that. As a game tester and QA manager for both Riot Games and Singularity 6, Nathan has led many teams to really successful outcomes. So we talked to him about his time game testing on League of Legends, the mistakes he made, and how his first management team at Riot helped shape him and his philosophies on work and leadership. Now, Nathan has had a long career as a game tester, and his insights into the gaming industry, management styles, and the future of gaming are priceless for anyone looking to succeed as a video game developer, designer, or artist. In this episode, we also talk about how Nathan got started at Riot Games, which is a surprising story on its own. We also have a great conversation about the type of games he looks forward to playing with his kids. This is a really inspiring episode with thoughtful insights into the gaming industry, and I really hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please feel free to like, subscribe, and share this video with someone you think would appreciate it. We'd love the support. Hey guys, how are you doing today? Hey, doing great. Thank you, Ari. Doing awesome. And yourself? doing very well thank you she just started her uh first uh kind of industry tangential job didn't you well if you don't count this yes <laughs> <laughs> i don't think we pay you enough to count it as a, as a, a career yet but maybe someday congratulations that's awesome oh thank you so much yeah i i had last week as like a half week and then this was my first full week and uh, it's going very well so i appreciate that thank you well, congratulations and looking forward to hear about that in the future uh, as you kind of build some stuff there. Um, yeah, but uh, Nathan, so good to have you uh, take the time out to join us as well. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me, Alex. Thank you for having me, Ari. Oh, it's really our pleasure. It's the guests that make the show, so we're really happy to have you. Um, but with that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? How uh, are you in the video game industry? What do you do? So uh, my name is Nathan Tyrus. I've been in the games industry for roughly 10 years. Uh, I got my start and my big break at Riot Games, and I'm currently the QA manager at Singularity 6 running the QA department. Um, my story to get into the industry was actually a lot of fun. Um, I graduated from USC in 2009 at the height of the Great Recession, um, and the job market was really soft. Um, in what wasn't a great choice in hindsight, I joined the finance industry, selling 401ks, life insurance, uh, those sort of financial products. And after roughly a year in that industry, I hadn't really made any money. And so I 
asked myself, who has money who would be able to invest? I said, CEOs. CEOs have a lot of money to invest. So I went to the USC alumni database and I typed in CEO for job title and it pulled up a list of 500 or so folks who identified their title as CEO. And I printed out the entire list and I just started cold calling at the very top and just moved my way down. Uh, fortunately, Beck is very early in the alphabet because it was like the 20th person I called. And that was Brandon Beck, who was the CEO of Riot Games. Uh, at the time I played the League of Legends, I was a pretty avid player. And I you know, did my pitch. Hey, my name is Nathan. I'm a financial advisor. I graduated from USC. Wanted to talk to you about maybe 401k or life insurance. And it was his mom. <laughs> she said, oh, wow, uh, this isn't actually Brandon's number. This is his parents' house. He doesn't live here anymore. Mm-hmm. But here's his cell phone number. <laughs> mom doxed brandon that's so amazing <laughs> i'm just sitting there with brandon beck's cell phone number uh-huh. and i was like i i just hit the jackpot ostensibly and so i called him up and said hey i'm nathan financial advisor give him the spiel and he says how'd you get this number like, oh your mom gave it to me and it was just 10 <laughs> seconds of the like most uncomfortable silence i've spent <laughs> probably to this point in my life mm-hmm. um but he said okay so like like, since you have this number, like, why are you calling? I said, oh, I'm a financial advisor looking to sell right a 401k or life insurance or something like that. He said, okay, like, get on my calendar and we'll talk. So he didn't want to meet with me because I wouldn't have wanted to meet with him either. So he put me off for like six months or so. Um, but then eventually I got a meeting with him. And at that time, I wasn't even in finance anymore. But I was like, he's the CEO of my favorite game. It's mm-hmm. like, why would I not keep this meeting? So I show up in like a suit and tie, and he's like, "So what? Are, what are what are you doing here?" I was like, "Well, you make my favorite game. I thought it would be cool to meet you." It's like, "Do you play?" I was like, "Yeah, I'm like ranked like 1500 or so. My elo is like that high." And he's like, "Oh, sweet. Let me give you a tour." So he just <laughs> gives me a tour of Riot and shows me all sorts of like in in progress stuff. Uh, the legendary skin that was coming out was uh, Demon Blade Trindamir, which was the skin mm. that was being worked on. And he was like, "Check this cool thing out." Um, and it was a really cool experience. And at that point, I just kept in touch. And eventually I said, hey, it would be really fun to play some ranked games together. And so I get a friend request from his Smurf. And I didn't know it at the time, but I got a friend request. And we played a game together. I played Amumu and Jungle. And I went like 11-0 and 13-1. And, and he was like, this kid is awesome. <laughs> so we became friends and um, played games together. Eventually, we were watching WCG 2012 and an eventrello channel and he told me to hop into a channel with him and asked him asked me what my career goals were and i told him it would be pretty awesome to work at riot so he sent it in my resume and that was how i got my foot in the door it's amazing let me just add a footnote real quick for those who don't know a smurf account is like a lower level account uh, that you don't necessarily play as your main account and then that way you can play with lower level uh, people and a lot of the time people don't like that because usually people who are really good will go up against people that are not as good as them and then they just absolutely destroy but in this case it was uh for different reasons so it's okay <laughs> yeah and in that case right um some also would smirk just to not be kind of called out in every single game mm-hmm. um, it can, sometimes it's fun to be like oh hey you work right yeah but other time people came back very brutal and the amount of times that people would be like you're not actually rise is like i probably that got old um because it's hard to believe that you're playing with the ceo of the company that makes the game that just is not something you're expecting as a player Uh, but it was a lot of fun and i 
like I cannot discount the impact of luck luck on my career because mm-hmm. without you know a series of events that I, there's no way I could have realistically planned, I yeah. would not be in the position that I'm in now. Yeah. Um, so cold calling works, but cold calling is not fun. So make sure you're asking for something worth asking for if you're going to go to the pain of cold calling. And I also want to call it, there's another element in there, right? Uh, one was time, right? There was a long amount of time between you two becoming familiar with each other Two, your personality and you didn't ask things of them, right? You actually became friends with this person by actually just being friends with them and enjoying the thing you enjoyed. That was what built the trust that enabled that moment to actually happen down the road. No. Um, I'm more sure you two have had moments where someone goes like, hey, nice to meet you. Like, oh yeah, cool, let's play some games together. And then they hound you and they're constantly asking you for keys or access or information you can't give, right? That's not how you build a friendship. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And one of the things that was really cool about that was that I like we continue to play games for a while. We don't so much anymore. Like mm-hmm. a lot of time has passed and things have gotten busy. But it was it was a really helpful way to humanize riot for me like as a player i was in my early 20s and i'd never even thought of the games industry as a viable career path like i I tried to quote make my own games when i was like 15 so i decided to learn c plus plus and learning c plus plus at 15 from a book about learning c plus plus in 21 days wasn't a great choice to get into game development (laughs) so until that like for lack of a better framing chance meeting with Brandon like I didn't even really think of the games industry as a viable career path yeah it's funny how many of the people that we've had on our show have replicated that same story where they didn't even consider it as a possible path and it was more the relationships that they had and the connections that they made that led them into it as opposed to having it always have been their lifelong dream and I think that's really different than what I see from my peers nowadays because almost all of us like went to school for it, have been dreaming of it since we were little kids. And it's been a plan in the works for a long time, but it also feels harder because it's more difficult to make connections with people. I don't think you could find uh, his mom's phone number in the USC website anymore. (laughs) It's it's unlikely. I would be unsurprised if it was removed shortly after our conversation. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if they removed it either. Yeah, I don't know if I'd want my phone uh, number up on uh, you know, my school's alumni list at this point either. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been more than a few times where you know I've gotten death threats just for being a developer, right? Uh, you know, that's not... Uh, people can get really strange. Um, there was one time someone showed up at my parents' home with a pellet gun and shot some of my mom's uh, ceramic rabbits and then left two dead rabbits that they had hunted uh, as replacements of the uh, ceramic. So, you know, uh, people can get very weird and very uh, uncomfortable. So private information, best to keep private. That's a lesson to anyone. Yeah. I don't think my eyes can get much wider than they are right now. Yeah. Yeah, that was an uncomfortable situation, to say the least. Gotta love the gaming community, right? Well, that's the, that's the thing, right? Is that those moments can often obscure your love for a population of people who are overall, you know, uh, there are many wonderful people in there and many troubled people and many people who are still working on themselves and other things, right? And that, that makes it tough, right? It makes it tough to interact with the community and not know, are you is this one going to be the hand that says thank you, the hand that's going to, you know, nip you and say we want more, or the hand that's literally going to come and cut you off, right? 
Um, so that's one of the reasons actually that trust uh, experiences lead to a lot of people getting into the game industry, right? You're interacting with people who are non-threatening that you've known over periods of time. And hopefully if they also bring a skill set that's useful and distinct, um, bring a value to the team that justifies that trust and connection as well. Um, but you're right, things are changing now. Speaking of that, then you said you weren't in finance anymore. So what did mm -hmm. he want to bring you in as when you started working at Riot? Uh, so he told me to send in my resume and the only skill set that I had, quite frankly, was being good at League of Legends. Mm -hmm. Like my critical thinking was was strong. My communication was strong. But in terms of hard skills, I, I didn't have any coding experience or background. I had never designed anything. Um, I interviewed with both quality assurance and production. Um, I was passed by, on by production, which in knowing what I know now makes perfect sense. I would have passed on the candidate that applied then too. Um, and so quality assurance was where my skill set fit and was a really good place for me to grow. And so who were some of the first people you interacted with in that first team? Describe your life as a, the, like, if you can remember your first day, describe a few of the people you met and the dynamics and the relationships you started building and talk about where that went. So I joined a team that was called the ICE G team. Uh, ICE G stood for improved customer experience game. Um, Riot's development processes were not particularly mature, mature at the time. Um, so the standard dev pipeline was to execute on your work within the sprint. We were working in Agile, but fairly newly. I had never worked in any framework, so it was all novel to me. Um, and then a release branch was cut. And then the ICE teams, there was one for the platform and one for the game and one for the website. And each of those teams would then be accountable for fixing all of the bugs that were found on that branch. And that had the benefit of allowing the teams who are not the ICE teams to continue their ongoing development work. Uh, it had the cost of disassociating them from the quality of their work. So getting something that worked enough to compile a build and then passing it off to another team to fix the bugs wasn't a very healthy ongoing development practice. Mm. And part of the challenge that came with that was just fixing bugs isn't very fulfilling in and of itself. Like the ICE teams never really had big wins. They only experienced losses when bad bugs were found on live. Mm -hmm. um, so it was like a talent, uh, talent retention problem. It was a morale problem. And it just wasn't a very good sustainable development practice. Um, ironically, there was a security vulnerability which was found uh, like the week before I, or maybe the week after I started. Um, so we had to refactor the entire particle system League of Legends in the you know first month or so of my time there. Uh, this led to those who like are familiar with League of Legends, the infamous Hecarim patch, which was delayed two weeks and broke everything. That was my fault um, as the quality <laughs> assurance professional at the time. Um, and the lessons I learned from that were pretty impactful. Um, after we actually shipped that patch, it was like six weeks later than Riot's expected shipping time. I, I had a one-on-one with my manager, a guy named Ben Seifert. And I sit down and I'm like, so are you just going to fire me? He's like, why do you think we're going to fire you? I was like, well, we're like six weeks late. There's all these bugs, like lifts off litany of reasons. He's like, no, you did well given the support that you had and like... I didn't support you well enough. And it was like a very 
humbling moment to have a manager sort of fall on the sword for me like that. Yeah. Um, and like, I want like quick shout out to Ben Seifert. I believe he's the director of QA at Epic now or mm-hmm. on Fortnite. I, I don't know exactly where in the org, um, but he gave me a really valuable framework in that conversation that has stuck with me ever since. Um, there, he drew three concentric circles, a small one, a larger one, and a big one. And the inside one he defined as the comfort zone. He said, this is your comfort zone. Like you're capable operating here without much supervision. You can execute, you feel comfortable here. Uh, The second circle is the stretch zone. Uh, This is where things are within your capabilities, but they're difficult. They will push you. They will cause you to doubt yourself and there'll be a challenge for you to achieve. And then this last one is the panic zone. This is where frankly, you're not going to be successful. So my job as your manager is to give you tasks and goals that keep you in that stretch zone. Because as Mm -hmm. time progresses, your comfort zone will get bigger and replace that area that was your stretch zone. And that panic zone becomes your new stretch zone. And then you define a new panic zone. So at each major threshold within your career, no matter what field you're in, you can see how you can progress from things that used to be extremely difficult, writing a test plan, to things that are now fairly apt, fairly like banal like writing a test strategy for an entire feature set or mm-hmm. hiring someone for the first time versus hiring a team based upon a variety of different product needs. And that really stuck with me. And that's actually the framework that I leverage to manage people today in my in my role. So what is the role yeah. that you're in now? So I am currently the uh, senior QA manager at Singularity 6. Uh, we're working on an MMO community simulator called Palea. Um, and it's pretty cool hope hope folks enjoy it when we eventually ship it um but the challenges that that's brought up for me as a professional have been really interesting um i wasn't actually looking to join singularity 6 um i was pretty happy at riot and i was working on valorant the first person shooter Mm -hmm. um but uh folks i had worked with previously who had started singularity 6 were looking for someone to build their qa organization and I'm the beneficiary of having had really great mentors and really, really great managers. And a lot of the things that they shared with me about their experience as senior riot leaders within quality assurance gave me really good insight and helped me frame my thoughts about quality, about games and about building organizations. And so when I was given the opportunity to do that from the ground up at Singularity 6, I couldn't say no. And naturally that makes sense that you want to carry on both that legacy and that compassion and kindness that you were shown in that moment of vulnerability, right? Where you were in front of the manager and thought, Hey, um, I, I met, I didn't catch this. Clearly I failed. And I'm always reminded of the story, you know, um, an executive goes to, uh, makes an investment in a place, loses a million dollars, comes in, hands in his resignation. And the CEO goes, why did you just hand me resignation? Like, well, I just lost a million dollars. The CEO looks at him and says, I just spent a million dollars training you. You sure as hell are earning some of that back, right? Get back to work. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of a, a selfish reframing of the same thing, right? But when people go through hard things and do it not by lack of discipline or, you know, lack of, um, you know, having done what they needed to do, but rather just didn't know or didn't have the capability to handle all of the things. Um, you've, they've grown, they've learned more, and now they have experiences they can build on to be better than they were before. I've had, you know, everyone from programmers to artists to, you know, designers who 
sit down, they struggle with something, they release a boss that sucked. I know I've done that more than a few times, right? And those lessons snowball together so the next time one you make will be less likely to fail and more likely to be successful. And that's a normal, healthy you know, description of what growth is. And sometimes, I don't know, maybe it was part of part our generation, but I know I was very much brought up with the, if you fail, you're out, mm -hmm. right? One of the books that I read that was truly transformational for me was Mindset by Carol Dweck. Um, my wife recommended it because she had read it and it, in many ways, it shined an uncomfortable mirror on ways that I viewed myself and my capabilities. Um, growing up, I had been like pretty skilled in some areas and pretty weak in others. Um, but for whatever reason, whether it was upbringing or societal pressures, whatever, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. Um, I viewed a lot of those traits as in it and unchangeable so when math became hard at like you know the calculus like level like i didn't interpret that as an opportunity to apply myself more and learn it better i bounced off and said i guess i'm not good at this hmm. um and that was a very tough realization you know as a young adult because i do wonder how many doors that i personally shut myself off from because of that like experience of adversity, whether it was like meaningful adversity or trivial adversity, like that was still enough for to dissuade me from pursuing that path. Um, and that book, Mindset by Carol Dweck, which I strongly recommend, was the thing that helped me understand that that was a viewpoint I had been using. Mm -hmm. So that was really helpful for me. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. I'll be sure to put it in the description down below for the audience if anybody wants to check it out. I am a little curious going back. Uh, what is the infamous Hecarim patch? Because I'm not familiar with that. What happened? Uh, so League of Legends, for those who aren't familiar, is a uh, PC game uh, published by Riot Games. And it launched back in 2009. And part of the uh, value was to deliver regular content every two weeks. Um, the Hecarim patch launched in maybe March or April of 2012. And uh, the time to develop that patch was, I want to say, eight weeks. So the game League of Legends went roughly eight weeks between content drops. And mm. that was four times longer than A, what was established and communicated to players, mm -hmm. and B, what the company's goals were. And when we actually published that patch, everything was broken anyways, despite it having been, you know, three patch cycles late. So um, we, there was a bug that was released that caused certain particles not to fall off properly when they were triggered in Fog of War. Mm -hmm. uh, Fog of War is the state where you cannot see what another character is doing if you don't have vision of them directly. Uh, in League of Legends, information is really important in your decision-making, areas you choose to go or not go because you're playing against another team who has similar objectives um, to defeat you. Right. Uh, there is a character named Sona, who mm -hmm. is a champion who uh, creates auras. She provides healing or attack power or movement speed. And she does this very regularly. So she's a musical character, and that's sort of her, her whole appeal. Um, each time she would cast a new ability, which she did every two or so seconds because of, that's what the cooldowns were, mm -hmm. uh, it would cause a new particle effect to be on her character. In the old system that 
was fine, and the transition to a new particle system, they didn't fall off in fog of war. So after not seeing her for, you know, a few minutes, uh, she would come out of fog of war with this radiant glowing cue and cause players' clients to crash. Oh no! <laughs> so, uh, we immediately after having pushed the patch, we had to disable the character and then find a new way to fix it and then put out a new patch. And the whole process was really painful, but the um, the impact on players was pretty high, both mm-hmm. because of the crashes that were being caused and also the loss in trust of Riot to continue delivering content. Um, yeah. So clearly it wasn't catastrophic. You know, Riot is still doing extremely well. Um, they've developed and published tons of awesome new games, content, etc. But that was back in the time when Riot was definitely not a household name, when League of Legends was still fairly under the radar. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was pretty worried <laughs> when that patch went live. That's understandable. It's so easy to lose people's trust, and it's so much harder to gain it back, unfortunately. Even if you've done everything that you've promised you would do 99% of the time, you mess up one time, and then all of a sudden people lose their trust, and it's uh, really unfair. I I can only imagine how emotionally distraught you must have felt at that time after working so hard for so long. And then this one mistake happens and everything seems like it crashes. Like I think it could have been a really big inflection point where I just left games. Um, but you know, my manager who I mentioned earlier, Ben, like yeah. he had a really healthy perspective for me. Mm-hmm. And that coupled with the fact that I, I didn't get fired. Um, you know, it gave me an opportunity to learn from those mistakes. Mm-hmm. It gave me an opportunity to continue rebuilding that trust. Um, one thing that Riot has done and continues to do that I really appreciate is engage heavily with players. Um, back before I joined the studio, it you know I was pretty distrusting of the free-to-play games model. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd only been exposed to things like like Farmville and other Facebook titles, which were pretty exploitatory. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like that whole monetization model didn't really sit well with me. Mm-hmm. So when some friends told me that League of Legends was like was free to play but good, like, mm-hmm. it was tough for me to reconcile that with my with my understanding of that model. I was suspicious of it too. I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> but it really is good. They mm-hmm. they really do live up to the promise. Mm-hmm. There's um, actually one of the the folks who's at Essex now um, came up with a revenue strategy that I thought was absolutely brilliant. And um, if more businesses leveraged it, I think they would be more successful. Mm -hmm. But the idea was that players should never feel penalized for not spending Mm -hmm. and they should always feel good before, during and after they spend. Mm -hmm. And it's so simple. Like it should not, you should not feel bad to be, deprived of something it's not like a model where you don't get to play anymore unless you choose to spend more money right and it's also the sort of thing where like you know i before i ever worked at riot i spent 200 dollars on league of legends skins mm-hmm. and i don't regret any of it like i the first thing i ever bought was a cassiopeia skin because she was the new character that came out and i thought snakes were cool and <laughs> like that was enough mm-hmm. and then there was like 
legendary skins account was like this aesthetic is incredible like i'm really enjoying it mm-hmm. and like our one thing that i was worried about and i asked about during my interviews at riot was like what do you do about the best in slot problem and the like i don't know if there's a satisfying answer for that but like back in season one i was gold or 1500 elo or whatever the requirement was i don't remember and I was granted Jarvan 4 with the Triumphant Jarvan skin. And, like, objectively, it is a very low quality of skin by today's standards. Mm-hmm. There's no special particles. There's no, like, model or template changes. But I will play that skin every single time I play Jarvan because it shows, like, something that I earned back in 2011 or whenever it was. And that, like, basically cuts off Jarvan as a revenue source for from me and you know i represent a very small portion of players that actually had that so mm-hmm. i don't know what the actual numbers are but those types of financial and revenue considerations are really interesting at the business level for any game studio can you explain that problem a little bit more is the idea of that that you have one skin that you already like for the character so you have no reason to get any other skins essentially exactly like once there is something that is quote best in class there's there's not incentive for your player base to monetize additionally on that slot because um, mm. no matter no matter how cool the next Jarvan skin that comes out is, um, I'm going to want to show off the skin that I earned because I was good at League of Legends, circa you know season one or whatever mm-hmm. the case. Yeah, be. I I very much felt that around the Rise skin that we got at Riot Rumble, right? I'm like, no one else could get this, right? Exactly. Why would I grab anything else? One of the things I want to hear about is kind of the mental growth milestones you remember hitting, right? And I mean, there's all sorts of things we learned about how to use this platform and that platform, but there are moments I often look back and I'm like, oh, this is where I finally learned how to do this. Mm-hmm. And it kind of changed my perspective on how I saw myself, my projects, or the work as a whole. Do you have any of those you'd be willing to share today? Absolutely. Um, the... My progression from uh, QA analyst to QA lead was pretty quick at Riot. I was the beneficiary of rapid growth of the studio and you know good opportunities. Um, and when I transitioned from being an independent contributor to being a manager was a really tough mental milestone. Um, and that was for two reasons. One was that I was leading the live QA team which was accountable for deployment coverage. Um, and Riot was deploying to nine or 10 regions in a 24 seven like global space at that time. Um, so like, just, like the scope of managing that work was difficult for me, but our deployment coverage was always at off hours. Um, most game studios, if possible, will try to do deployments off peak. Um, that's typically in like the 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. time slot in whatever local time zone it is. So to deploy to a European region, like that was not a big deal. It was usually like 5 p.m. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for North America, that was 1 a.m. Yeah. Um, so we typically had to, when I joined Riot, there were two, there was, there was a release team that managed the releases and also deployment and deployment coverage. And it was just too much work. So I pitched a team of like specific deployment coverage and uh, hotfix sort of resolution stuff. And 
it was accepted by the QA director and he said, okay, build the team. And I was wholly unequipped for that, to be honest. Um, but as we built the team, we started getting some wins. We started decreasing deployment times. And at some point in that phase, I was promoted from a senior analyst to a, a QA lead. And part of that led or transitioned from uh, being hourly to salary. And I've always been a lead from the front sort of person. And so, the, you know, I would volunteer to take the overnight deployments because I, like, it felt like the right thing to do, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And when I transitioned from hourly to salary, like, those were actually super valuable hours because of how California employment law works. Like, you get time and a half at, like, 10 hours and then, like, double time at 12 or something like that. And mm-hmm. sometimes deployments would not go well. So you're there until 4 a.m. because the environment isn't coming up properly or any number of reasons. And so while those were really painful for the folks managing the deploys, they were also pretty lucrative from the compensation perspective. Mm-hmm. So my team, in it, like when I told them I was promoted, they were like, that's awesome. Was, they're like, so are you hourly or salary now? I said, I've transitioned to salary. They're like, okay, you can't do overnight deploys anymore. And I was really confused by that. Mm-hmm. But they didn't want me taking those overnight hours because they were a pretty sizable bump to their compensation. Mm. And like recognizing that that was what was important to my team was not me leading from the front, but allowing them to optimize for what they needed in their careers was a really important mental shift that was, I was fortunate because it was forced upon me. Like my team brought it to me and said, here's how we want this operation to transition rather than me having to like come to it on my own because it really helped me understand that what I think folks need may not be what they actually need. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a very, very important lesson. You know, I mean, I remember one of the things that blocked me from management for a long time, being an individual contributor was what do I want to make happen in the game? Mm-hmm. Not what does this team need and how do I empower them to make something awesome? And um, it was fortunately, I met um, my business partner, John, um, and as I was transitioning between roles and uh, we worked together on a project and he sat me down one day and I'm like, John, I don't know if I'm ever going to be a good manager. He's like, well, do you need to be a good manager? I'm like, I think so. It's like, okay, let me tell you these two things. One, your job is not to do the thing. Your job is to get the thing done. And two, if you want to get more things done or better things done, your job is to make yourself as dispensable as possible. Not you are no longer the, the person that everyone else is coming to and handing features all of the time because you're the only one who can do it. Mm-hmm. You have to be about everyone else being able to do it and putting yourself to, uh, as a resource if needed. That changed everything. Mm-hmm. It really did. Um, well, I, I'd say I wasn't in that conversation, but that mind shift change was really, really important. Um, and the, the lessons that it taught me were that if I could make my organization 5% more efficient on a per-person basis, that was better than any single contribution I could make because it just doesn't scale the same. Like, in for a, a video game sort of comparison, like, if you can increase your personal DPS by 10% or your party's DPS by 2%, like, even though that 2% is a lower absolute number the overall impact on your dps is going to go up Mm -hmm. so 
it may feel worse to not have you know your name at the top of that chart but your total raid completion time or whatever objective it is that you're trying to achieve is is more consistent or more reliable or faster or easier because you've made the team better and that was a really critical piece of my mental learning that had to take place as well it's really great that your team felt safe to bring that to you and that you had cultivated a space where they could bring it up to you and communicate the needs that they had because i I'm sure that there are many managers who don't create an environment in a space where their team could bring something like that up. I'm, I'm very fortunate that um, I tend to be pretty approachable. Um, and I, I'd like to think that that's because of how I ask for feedback and, and how I engage with people. Because um, people feeling safe talking to their manager or a mentor or a peer is critical for all sorts of reasons mm -hmm. um i i think i you know i was lucky that i had some really good managers early on who set that expectation for me it sounds like the managers that you had were really foundational for you in in the structure that you've set up from then to the whole rest of your career um and that's wonderful so at singularity six where you mm -hmm. are now um can you tell us a little bit about what that project is? I saw on the website, because I was doing a little bit of internet snooping uh, mm -hmm. beforehand, that it said the aim of the studio is to create technology that doesn't drive people apart, but brings people together. And mm -hmm. so I would love to hear about how that is implemented. So um, the game that we're working on is called Palea. It is an MMO and the community simulator space. Um, Aiden and Anthony are the two co-founders. They worked together at Riot and they saw an opportunity to build something that would let players express themselves and also generate the sort of joy that you see in a game like Animal Crossing or in like Stardew Valley. Mm -hmm. And those are really compelling experiences. Um, and we think that we can do something in that space that uh, takes it to an MMO type, type experience. And Part of that is understanding that there are different times in different areas for different types of experiences. Like, I am a very competitive person. I played sports my whole life. Um, I play Valorant and League of Legends, and like that's the sort of environment that I typically gravitate towards as a player. But there are times where that's not what I need. There are times where I want that sense of belonging, that sense of home. And the goal of Palea is to provide that sort of location for players. Like mm -hmm. you can build something that, you know, for lack, like the way I like to think of it as a joy engine, like you go over that hill and there's like, wow, that vista is beautiful. Or like, wow, I can't believe that this music is so soothing. Like, those can be really meaningful moments, and that is that is really, really valuable. Now, of course, we need to be very respectful, of course, of that you not divulge or discuss anything that isn't confidential, of course. So just for the readers uh, and listeners, just so you know, if there's anything here at any point that you, think you need to just be like, hey, we can't talk about it, you can always say that. Mm -hmm. I try to choose my words carefully. <laughs> All right. Just wanted to make sure to put that in because uh, I want to make it clear to the listeners, this is not a Palia interview. 
And so they're not going to get the whole divulge secrets here, but appreciate you sharing that perspective and strategy. Um, I mean, I've been looking back at Warcraft, right? Mm -hmm. um, that was a game that was for a lot of different people, and I did, wouldn't have identified most of them when the game launched, right? For people who came to complete, gather gear, and fight through dungeons, right? And then there were also the people who just wanted to hang out in taverns and talk, or go out and explore the world and pick flowers, right? I, I literally knew one person, you also know her as well, who literally leveled her Druid 260 by only picking flowers from the beginning of the game to the end of the game, because that is what she wanted to do. That's astonishing. That's a props to that person. Yep, yes, indeed. That's, that takes farming <laughs> to a different level. It really does. A very different direction of farming as well, yeah. Um, sorry, so you talked a little bit about uh, kind of the environment you wanted to create. Um, what are the kind of philosophies, what are the audiences and that you motivate you to want to create games that aren't these battle royales or, you know, MOBAs or massive world breaking, you know, defeat the great dragon that's going to slay the universe type games. So for, for me, it's a matter of wanting, A, it was an opportunity to build something different, um, working on League of Legends and then Valorant. Um, those are two hyper-focused, extremely competitive experiences. And like the highs that you get from those experiences are extremely compelling. Um, one of the ways that I wanted to grow myself was more narrative driven. Um, like within many PVP multiplayer games, the narrative is strictly speaking player created. Like it was that, that headshot on that person that I've lost and met against three times in a row, but this time it's going to be different. Like that's an entirely player constructed narrative based upon the gameplay that is taking place. Mm -hmm. Um, I've really, over the course of the last two years, with COVID being as omnipresent as it is, um, have found myself falling back in love with narrative-driven games. Um, things like Unpacking, or like right now I'm playing um, 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim, and just very uniquely told stories that just are really gripping. And I think the MMO space can do this really well. And... What makes it difficult is that everyone takes their own path through your universe. Like, there's the player, like you said, who, you know, just leveled to 60 picking flowers. And that's a fundamentally different narrative experience than the warrior who's, you know, just going to go and slay, like, Anixia. And constructing a world where players have that type of expression is a really compelling challenge for me, primarily because. I have not done that before and I can surround myself with awesome folks who are able to do that and I can learn from them. Um, yeah, I believe you're actually working with my friend Eileen right now. Yes. And she is just one of those phenomenal people who her ability to shift perspective based on the audience just does it so effortlessly, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always fall back on the, what would a combat guy, what would a wizard do? What would a, you know, any, give me any type of magic and I can handle it, right? Um, ask me how mom wants to hang out with her daughter online and I freeze up, right? It's just not in my, you know, trained skill set or lexicon. Mm -hmm. The the social dynamics that we experience, at least I've been forced to question a lot of them over the last two years. And if there's a silver lining from COVID, it's that it's caused me and, and I'm, I'm hoping some other people to rethink how we operate and what we take for granted. Mm -hmm. um, 
like you know i've been working from home for the past roughly two years and in that time i've gotten back maybe two thousand hours to spend with my wife and my kids like i've been able to build stronger connections at home and that's that's not something for me to take for granted and you know is it a trade-off that i'm happy to make no of course not COVID is terrible and i miss a lot of things but i also do appreciate that some of my relationships are stronger because of the games that we've played together over the last two years mm -hmm. um and if i learn nothing from this then i, I i'm not gonna say i'm doing it wrong the mere act of surviving today is sufficient um but i do like to get better whenever possible so you know that's those sort of evaluations become really meaningful mm -hmm. when you look back at something what kind of games are you looking forward to playing with your kids and how old are they now I, I'm, it's been a little bit so my son is four he turns five and like on february 2nd so just uh almost a week uh, oh, my daughter's <laughs> thank you thank you um the like pokemon has been really really enjoyable for us um the ip itself is just very very satisfying uh pokemon snap my wife affectionately referred to it as baby's first first person shooter um <laughs> and like there's a time and a place for like valorant or call of duty or, or what have you um i don't know maybe that's 13 or something like that but games with puzzle mechanics and cooperative mechanics are things that have been really enjoyable uh unravel 2 was one that we played together um it's you play as a, a a yarn figure and it had really really elegant mechanics to let someone let a pair of people play together even if their skill levels were pretty disparate mm -hmm. and like it was really interesting to see what sort of problem solving my four-year-old would try to do to get over you know a big hill or whatever the case may be and that was seeing that sort of creative expression is really cool someday i'm really excited about minecraft um maybe roblox although i don't know a ton about the platform i just know it's really big mm -hmm. um but like those sort of opportunities to do creative expression those are areas where i'm really excited to see my children game and come to think of it i think you and jillian actually met uh at riot is that right no we actually met at college at usc oh you actually met at college mm -hmm. okay yeah and um she actually started at riot four months before i did um Wow. What yeah. a coincidence. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, I, she was working as an executive assistant, and she um, had a prior recruiting experience. I saw a job posting on Riot's website about uh, a recruiting coordinator role, and I sent it her way, and she was already an avid player of League of Legends, and she she applied, and got that was how she got her foot in the door there. She, she ultimately ended up running a variety of platform teams before she she chose to leave and it's like one thing that is bittersweet for us is that riot was super formative and valuable in a ton of ways it was also yeah. a big investment of our hearts and souls um so you know we both became more capable better people from some of the trials and tribulations that we had at riot and we also shipped software to like hundreds of millions of players and that's just a really cool feeling and so that's that was pretty cool that's super cool 
I have yeah. also been playing Pokemon Snap with my niece. I live with my sister and her kids. Um, and it's super fun to play games like that with them, even if they don't quite have the finger dexterity to play the games themselves because they can point at the screen and say, oh, look, it's a bat, it's a monkey. And we normally use the actual animal names and not the Pokemon names because she's only three and we don't want her to get confused about what actual animals are compared to the Pokemon names. Um, but she loves looking at them and identifying what they are. And then we take a picture there and she says, okay, I want to do the jungle level. I want to do the desert level. And it's so great to have that time. And like you said, COVID is horrible and I'm not happy about it, but if I have to be home, I am very grateful for the time that I have gotten to spend with the kids of the family. Yeah. So you're absolutely right about that. Unironically, the like joy and pride of games is really, really powerful. Um, one of the games that I do play with my son is Mario Maker 2. Mm -hmm. And Ooh, it's it really is. And like the creative content that folks make is really, really compelling. There are some extremely difficult levels. There are some where it's like, Here's the Sonic theme song played by Turtle Shells. There's just a ton of creativity. Um, but, you know, my son likes to mess around with the level creation because it, it's intuitive. He understands, like, I can put platforms here. And one of my favorite gaming experiences is when he made a level and we uploaded it. And someone played it and liked it. And, like, telling him, hey, like, XYZ two four six player they played your level and they liked it and the thing that struck me was his immediate reaction was we should play their level and like it like, it was immediately reciprocal and it was like really heartwarming because that just i didn't tell him to he just was like i want to share this joy with that person who just made me happy that is yeah. so sweet <laughs> super cute I love that because it was a moment like that that got me started in games, you know, watching my brother beat a boss and just lose it in joy, right? And wanting to bring that feeling to more people. Um, I think that's kind of at the heart of a lot of success in life, right? Is, is connecting not only the desire of what you want to do, but it benefiting others in a way that makes them happy, delighted, or alleviates pain, right? Um, Part of my... my goal in life is to make the world a better place and like that's very hand wavy and vague and ambiguous um but i i truly believe that games can help do that like people need to experience joy um people need to play like you can look throughout history for all sorts of human activities and there's always some capacity of competition or play or or sport or something and i'd argue it's sort of core to the human experience absolutely and I, I think that i'd like to think that my contribution to it is helping some people find joy in the products that i work on and mm -hmm. the things i deliver to players um i'm not i'm not a doctor i'm not gonna cure cancer I don't have the answers to solve world hunger, but I can hopefully help that kid who is, you know, playing Valorant feel that high high of that that headshot that, you know, wins the round and wins the game and gets them into gold. Like, mm -hmm. Hopefully I can be a person who helps build up the quality for Palea so that when players play it, they, they feel a place that they can be themselves, where they can really experience that sort of comfort that 
we all we all strive for. And am I able to do it every time? Absolutely not. But hopefully I can do it enough that when I'm gone, that's sort of my mark. There are, there are folks who've been able to enjoy life more because of the things that I helped create. That's a beautiful dream to have. And it's one that I share too. It's a good one. I wish you the best with it. Thank you. <laughs> and you too in your ongoing journey. Thank you. All right, let's pivot a little bit. Um, we've kind of had some really touching moments here. Let's get into a little bit of um, more similar crunchy moments you've had uh, working in the games industry, right? Uh, talk a little bit about interactions you've had with games and game designers, right? And um, if you can think of a moment where you had like friction or difficulty and talk about how you had to navigate that with the other person, work through problems and then come to a solution that ended up helping the organization, yourself or even them. Um, and how that work, how that helped you and helped you grow. So one of the one of the projects that I was on fairly early um, was a board game which ended up shipping called Mechs versus Minions. And hey, it got was, it over there. It's it, on the, the table. Awesome. That makes me happy. Um, and it was my first experience working on a board game, and my only one professionally. But the the challenges in testing that game were very different than the challenges we experienced on like League of Legends, which was my, my only other experience. Um, and a big piece of that was that we had, for those who have not played it, uh, it's not a legacy game, but there are 10 different missions that progress and tell a story. And testing that with a group who already knew that story was really difficult. Um, we already knew all the mechanics, we already knew the unlockables and a variety of other hidden features that were um, you know, that were coming down the pipeline. So in order for us to realistically test the experience, we needed fresh eyes and we needed an investment of roughly 80 hours per person to like get through everything and get their feedback. And that's a lot of time for us to get from a group of four people playing our game like how does that translate to their deliverables for their team at riot um and you know if you just ask any producer to give away 80 hours of velocity you're probably not going to have a great time um so we needed to build a really compelling business case and i partnered with uh chris cantrell who was the the producer on mexters minions and you know we we had to build a pitch for something that could go out to the entire studio to get volunteers who would then make a commitment to play twice a week for five weeks in order to complete the campaign. And we got a decent amount of pushback from folks who didn't want to lose their the velocity of, of their folks. And we had to convince them of the business need and there are not any individuals, specific individuals that I, I would want to call out, um, especially because they were working in the best interests of, of the studio. And that led to some challenging conversations, but it also led to a greater understanding of what our priorities were. You know, the goal for us as a team was to ship an awesome board game to players. Uh, the goal for Riot as a studio was to um, put out something in a different medium that would show what Riot was capable of outside of just League of Legends. And 
also test our publishing arm. So you know, there was a variety of studio-wide values that we were hoping to deliver on. And some of those came at the expense of like a sprint deliverable. And it was a tricky situation to navigate, but I'm really thankful that you know Chris was had the confidence in me to build this plan. Um, and that Genevieve Conley, uh, now, now Gamble, um, worked with oh, me. Yeah. yeah, she was incredible. Uh, yeah, UI UX was amazing. Mm -hmm. And she was, uh, she worked with me to help build out the questions and the surveys that we needed to know if we were actually succeeding in what we wanted to deliver. And then the team itself pivoting on responding to feedback. Like we had, obviously, don't have access to the data now, but, um, as a spoiler for folks who have not yet played Mechs versus Minions and want to, there is a Clear your ears, folks. If you a, don't want to hear uh, it, uh, there's a boss fight, and the boss has a variety of different mechanics that are hopefully pretty cool. Um, but in our first play tests of that boss fight, 100% of the players who played through that campaign won the mission. So like the win rate was 100%. We were tracking win rate, loss rate, and it had the lowest satisfaction of any of the missions that we had done thus far so despite the best success rate it was the least appreciated and so we had to make meaningful pivots which actually yielded an additional deck of cards and some mechanical changes to run that mission in a way that made it exciting and compelling for players so when we made those changes and had them run it again the win rate dropped to like 60 percent so you know almost half of those teams lost a mission they had previously won but categorically they enjoyed it more and so the dev team being willing to take that feedback and iterate and come back with something that was actually hitting the mark was a really really cool moment especially because the player feedback we got didn't line up with our expectations yeah it's uh an important lesson i actually think uh that Players, are, so there's two mindsets I think a lot of people came to in Warcraft, right, uh, as developers. And that was either um, boss fights are here to prove how cool I am as a developer, or boss fights are here to be punching bags for players to get loot out of, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, depending on where that initial mindset came from, you'd often see boss designs that were on the extremes, way too easy, but thematic or extremely difficult, challenging, um, right? And one of the things that I think kind of really was an eye-opening moment was, no, um, boss fights are best when they push you in a way that you feel scared and thrilled and think you may not win and then don't win, but you have an idea of how to get better. And the next time you go and fight it, you will get it. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the biggest, I don't, did you play during Raid Finder? I did not. Um, Ethan? Yeah. One of the biggest uh, letdowns, I think, in the, my time there was when we released Raid Finder, the bosses were tuned so low that you just showed up and you pushed your buttons and you beat them, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of took away a lot of the thrill of raiding, right? It wasn't that you needed to win on every fight. It wasn't that you needed to lose, you know, 10 times to beat a boss, but it was like almost, there was almost no resistance, right? You just took a few instructions and won. And the people who played through that experience, even though they got access to the story content, right, of seeing, you know, the king seeing these other pieces of content that they wouldn't have otherwise didn't walk away with that same sense of satisfaction as the people who suffered a bit learned grew, and then overcame it mm -hmm. you no know? and i think it's an incredibly important lesson for designers uh, developers artists etc out there 
there are times when people need to win and it's okay, right? You don't, every encounter doesn't need to be murder. But knowing that audience and knowing when to push them and to make them feel like what they have received was worth their time and effort is incredibly, incredibly important. Yeah. And I think like you can see that in like the Souls-like genre, um, you can see that in the, the growth and prol- proliferation of the roguelike space, like there is a sense of, of accomplishment that is very real from overcoming something difficult. And like, again, that's not for everybody, but it also doesn't need to be for everybody all of the time. Mm-hmm. Like you can have those seminal moments where that one fight was really difficult and I had to lose it five times before I cleared it. And that sixth time you clear it is extremely compelling. Um, and that's the story you tell about, you know, to your friends or to you know other folks like, you know, if that time where you fight Emerald Weapon in Final Fantasy VII and you yeah. have a 20-minute clock, I think. Yep. And, like, clearly this, like, from the initial onset, the pacing is really good to say, this is going to be extremely difficult. Like, the damage numbers are all ridiculous, and you have a timer, so even if you're somehow able to survive, you need to be executing damage at, you know, whatever rate. If you are able to achieve that, like that felt good as a player. And it was optional, so maybe that makes it different. Like I don't know how that would change my perspective or the dynamic if it was a required like golden path experience. Mm. But letting players opt into the challenges that they feel are appropriate for what they want out of a gaming experience can be a very powerful tool. Absolutely. Well, Nathan. We are just about at the hour mark, and we are so appreciative of the time that you have taken to share with us today. Um, Do you have any projects or social media or anything that uh, you would like to share with us and have me put in the description for our audience before we finish up? The game I'm working on is called Palea, uh, and the studio I'm at is Singularity 6. We're hiring awesome folks if you're, you're interested in some of the stuff that I've talked about, and if you want to play it, we're hoping to release a game at some point, you know, maybe working from home, maybe in the office, we'll find out. Um, but uh, playpalea.com, I think. I'll check that real fast before I tell you the wrong one. <laughs> sure. We got a couple minutes. Go ahead and look it up. Yeah. You know what? Let's get that URL right. I'll be sure to put it in the description correctly. So whatever it is, it'll show up on the screen and be down below and we'll make sure it's the right one. <laughs> Actually, just palea.com. So even easier. Palea.com. Paleo. Okay. All right, fantastic. Well, uh, Nathan, thank you so much for coming, and um, I really, really, you know, enjoyed how you kind of reached in and talked about that, you know, that overall goal of leaving the world a better place, right? And um, I just want to say that, you know, with all the stuff you've done and the stuff you've worked on, and recognizing the the great chances you had, uh, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that just by being the kind, caring, and incredibly sensitive and thoughtful person you've always been since I've met you. Um, you have made the world a better place by helping others through the stressful moments that you went through and by bringing them insights and opportunities it wouldn't have had otherwise. And even so, even when you have to have those tough conversations, right, you do it from a place of helping them grow and leading them to a place to be a better person. So for that, I wanted to say thank you. Thank you, Alex. That That's very kind of you. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you so much. And 
to all of our audience, thank you so much for watching. And I hope that you all can make the world a better place too. If you have any questions for any of us, especially Nathan, make sure to leave it in the comment section down below. And if you want to see more episodes like this in the future, like and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank Bye, you everybody. so much. Cheers.